Hello and welcome back to Holistic Healers. For those who are new, welcome to the show. My name is Morgan Rutkowski. I am your host. For those who are returners, welcome back. Thank you for being here. Thank you for subscribing and following along. Holistic Healers, for those who don't know, is a podcast I provide. I speak to healers from across the country. They could be experts in their field that help their own clients um, live to their most authentic selves again. Um, to either people who are walking the walk, you know, healing themselves and want to share, you know, what they've experienced, what they've learned with the audience. So today I wanted to bring on a guest who is a licensed therapist. She specializes in mood disorders, emotional regulation through interventions like DBT, CBT, ACT, and mindfulness. She is also an author of two books. The first one is You and Your Emotions, and the second one is DBT Explained. She's dedicated to helping her clients take charge of their emotions instead of their emotions being in charge of them. So without further ado, I want to welcome Suzette Bray. Hey, Morgan. I'm super happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining. Why don't you start off by telling us, you know, a little about yourself and um, what you're on the show here today for? Well, I have been a therapist for 25 years. And um, one of the things I'm super passionate about is helping people keep their emotions, have their emotions, but get better at feeling them. Not necessarily work so much at feeling better, because better can lead to all kinds of emotional avoidance. You know, like if I wanted to feel better, let's say I was anxious and um, leaving my house um, was problematic. It made me feel anxious. What I would do to feel better is not leave my house. And maybe I would do it so little that I was left with just a, a rectangular shaped spot for when the pizza gets slided, slid in, you know? And that's not really ultimately leading to a life that I'm going to enjoy that's going to feel great um, and, and feel rewarding. So my job, I see it as, is not so much as helping people feel better, but getting better at feeling so that big emotions don't feel overwhelming and don't, don't overtake them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a stigma to um, about emotions in general that we have to get rid of them instead of just learning how to manage them and, you know, change our mindset about them. So I love what you do. I like it, too. <laughs> I like it too. It's really it's really fun to watch somebody turn the corner where they realize that like a big emotion is not a big deal. And and instead of having something that's frightening or upsetting be a roadblock or a barrier to what they really want out of life. They, they accept that emotion, learn how to keep it from getting in their way and move towards their goals of, of what they really want. How did you become a therapist? What got you into this world? Um, it's a weird story. It was the, it was the 1980s, that old. And, um, I was a fashion designer and I, you know, I, I lived in LA, went to New York the first week of every month and started to realize after a while, that this was not the life I wanted. I, I just, kept looking around and going, this was supposed to be exciting. And it was, don't get me wrong. New York in the eighties was amazing <laughs> on expense account. It was great. Um, but, 
you know, over time, I started to realize that I just, you know how they always say, you know, blue's the new black, pink's the new black. I got to the point where I did not give a damn what the new black was. Mm -hmm. And I also looked around and realized that all of us in the fashion industry, all of us young women in the fashion industry, we were all cute and young and there weren't a whole bunch of us left after we turned about 35. Oh, interesting. You know, they just wasn't really an option unless you were a big name designer to have a career. So I started to kind of take that burnout. I felt about the shallowness of the fashion industry and the, the no room for a personal life and, you know, being on the zoo plane back from New York, mm -hmm. um, you know, <laughs> which was, oh my gosh, the stories. <laughs> I won't tell you the stories. Um, but, but, you know, it started to think about a new career. And of course, like so many other people who end up being therapists, therapy was what helped me. It helped me overcome a traumatic childhood. It helped me make the decision about a career path that I would want. I fought it at first. For a <laughs> while, I wanted to be, a, I was going to become a philosophy professor, but I hated academia. <laughs> so it was like, philosophy or kind of applied philosophy which is kind of therapy yeah right so then I I went and got my master's and and all that stuff that it takes and and eventually I think I was licensed 20 years ago okay what is your uh master's in marital and family therapy okay so do you typically work with couples or recently so divorced that's one of the weird things <laughs> about all these different titles we have in psychology world, in counseling world. Mm -hmm. There are licensed professional counselors. There are licensed clinical social workers. There are licensed marriage and family therapists. And we all kind of do the same thing mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> from a slightly different lens. Mm -hmm. And so I don't see a lot of couples. I do, I do see families often. Okay. Um, because I do like to work with young people and young people don't come without a family. Fair. <laughs> so it looks like you specialize mood regulation, emotional regulation. Why don't you speak a little about that with the listeners? You know, what is that? You know, what can, um, how can people know what that is or, you know, how to deal with it? Absolutely. I mean, Bottom line, I mean, emotions are part of what makes us human. Mm -hmm. And so they're an incredible gift. They're also really a booger. They're, <laughs> they're kind of difficult, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> and, um, and often we end up doing things to avoid feeling emotions. Or if we do have a big emotion, doing anything to make it stop. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so kind of like emotions kind of tend to, unless well regulated, go into either a gimme more sort of thing mm -hmm. or, or make it stop kind of modality. And so the idea is, is that if we are at the mercy of our emotions, let's feel them. Absolutely. Nobody wants to be a robot. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but, but if we're at the mercy of them, it gets in the way of all kinds of stuff. Because let's say I'm angry today and I'm a person with big emotions. I'm mm -hmm. super emotionally sensitive. <laughs> I feel things. 
Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I literally can have a thought if somebody is in, buying in front of me in the grocery store and they start pulling out coupons, it makes steam shoot out of, shoot out of my ears. I go nuts, right? <laughs> and my emotions tell me to, you know, go punch that person in the neck. Now, obviously, I'm not going to do it, yeah. right? Um, but... Even just if I went with that emotion at all, I might feel great shame because there's all kinds of reasons why that person is pulling out those coupons, mm -hmm. right? I, I can, even just starting with that emotion of anger, then the after effect of that emotion, which would be shame because I just, you know, I just shot horribly dirty looks at this person who's probably just trying to survive, yeah. you know? And, and then I have judgments about myself and my shame. Mm -hmm. And then that leads to me maybe, um, you know, uh, deciding I'm going to drink or eat all the cookies. Mm -hmm. And then it's just like, it just is all of this stuff that comes from me having an instantaneous reaction to an emotion. And so if I think that I'm just like, that's how I feel, there's nothing I can do about it. I kind of have this life that just, I'm at the mercy of things that happen around me and uh, physical sensations that occur to me and thoughts that occur to me. And then I just kind of live in this weird world where I'm just reacting and bouncing around like a pinball. No. And so the, the goal is, is for, for me at least, because I use emotional regulation skills all the time, mm -hmm. um, is how to um, feel and acknowledge and express what's happening for me in the moment while keeping in mind my longer term goals. Like, I want to feel okay about myself when I walk out of the grocery store. Mm -hmm. And, it and not go happy. eat all the cookies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I am too. When I feel shame, I'm. it's either it's that negative self-talk in my head. Sometimes it's just that automatic thought where I don't even know it's there to, you know, I just need sugar. Like I just want to binge eat right now on ice cream or something. <laughs> yeah. It's remarkable. The things mm -hmm. we do in the short term to make ourselves feel better. Yeah. 80% so, of the time lead to us feeling crappy later yeah and then you regret that and then there's more shame and yep the spiral of the shame cycle there we go yeah. so why do emotions then why are they so big or how do they get to that point to start I think that it's different for everybody you know we all have a friend who's mellow who just like Hey, you know, and things are like, they're like, what did they used to call nonstick pants, Teflon pants? Like yeah. they're nonstick. Things just roll off of them. But for a lot of us, we're more sensitive. A lot of people, and, and I think the theory is about 15% of people just kind of shoot out of the womb, more <laughs> emotionally sensitive. Mm -hmm. But then when we add in all the vulnerabilities that we've dealt with, over not just the last few years, I mean, with the pandemic and everything, we're yeah. all more vulnerable to emotion. Mm -hmm. If you notice when you're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, sick, you're more vulnerable to negative emotion, mm -hmm. right? And so we've all been through hell together. And then there's all this other stuff and every individual has their own vulnerabilities. Yep. And so a lot more of us are kind of one raw nerve these days mm -hmm. and 
and so that's that's the idea here is 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 um is kind of figuring out how to manage that how to you know how not to say you know it's bad to have emotions because it's not but how to accept like wow most of us are super vulnerable right now mm-hmm. and how do we figure out what's best for us in the long run and do do what's best for us rather than what our emotions yeah I've heard my generation be described as like overly sensitive (laughs) and I don't know if that has to do with the pandemic I don't know if it's just you know who we are but I think there's just that heightened sense of awareness maybe to emotions at this point not sure if we're able to control them just yet if it's you know comes from just being from parents that you know aren't consciously aware of their emotions who knows? Well, and I think, you know, mine, I, I grew up in the, the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, we just poured cocaine and alcohol on them, right? <laughs> yeah. And then and the, the people, you know, my parents just poured martinis on it. You know, it's like, I think the idea of acknowledging the, um, the higher level of emotion, it's not about, oh, these sensitive little snowflakes. I mean, although, you know, my generation of people older than me love to say that Mm -hmm. I see it as an evolution. I see it as a, as a way of, wow, we're recognizing and acknowledging emotion, acknowledging that people have feelings and that certain things are going to hurt and that we need to maybe take a little more care of each other. Absolutely. And I think that goes for my generation, you know, looking at the older generations as well, just, you know, not demonizing them as well, because that also just kind of puts that stigma out there saying, you know, older generations are bad, you know, we shouldn't listen to them, creates that rebellious uh, state. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, we've, <laughs> we, we've, and the folks older than me, we've got our wisdom, but we also can learn from people who are younger. Yeah. And we forget that sometimes. Mm -hmm. So you talked a little, I was going to say, you talk a little about um, how to manage emotions. What's the first thing you would recommend to your clients who are, you know, trying to become aware of their emotions and learning how to manage them? You know, I'm going to say mindfulness. Yeah. (laughs) And and probably I can hear the collective eye roll um, because it's, you know, it's Mm -hmm. such a thing now, right? Everybody thinks the the answer to everything is mindfulness. But when we really look at mindfulness, it's awareness of what's happening in the present moment. And so, and and without judgment Mm -hmm. and without trying to change it. So that awareness is so important. In fact, there are studies that say that when we can identify an emotion, we can name it, we reduce the intensity of the emotion immediately. Not a lot, but enough sometimes where we can grab hold of it and keep it from leading us down the path of destruction. So do you think then mindfulness has to do with uh, learning what the emotion feels like? Yeah, I think there are a lot of different components to it, right? Um, if we if we look at first body sensation, yeah. right, our physiology. I think they're called feelings for a reason. Mm-hmm. We feel them, right? So so even just recognizing and checking in with our bodies on a regular basis, mm-hmm. it's really it's a a big thing, right? I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I could run around for a whole day and realize that my shoulders have been up around my ears and completely tense all day long. 
And you know what that's going to lead to? I'm going to pick up my son from school. <laughs> he's going to say something because he's 12 and that's what he does. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go right at that. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. But if I can recognize, oh, hey, what's my body doing right now? Oh, yeah, it has been a stressful day. Okay, let me pull that down. Let me relax those muscles, reduce those body sensations associated with a flight or fight response, mm -hmm. and realize that, you know, yeah, my son's probably going to say, oh, mom, the other kids are looking at you. Don't yeah. look like you look when you pick <laughs> me up in the car pool. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, you know, and that's just what 12 year olds do, right? You know, instead of, you know, all of the things that go along with when we're all tense, how we react to something that someone might say. Yeah, hold so, on. Yeah, to that absolutely. Uh, absolutely. The whole I think the whole thing starts with bodily awareness. And then I think the other thing that we have to be really aware is of our assumptions and judgments, our thoughts about something. Mm -hmm. And how we react in that way and what those assumptions and judgments are telling us about a specific situation. I see that you specialize in CBT. And then for those who are listening who may not be familiar what CBT is, um, it's a top-down approach. Uh, it's an intervention used from, you know, counselors, therapists, whoever. Um, basically, it's understanding how your thoughts or triggering events that initiate, you know, automatic thoughts, beliefs, uh, thoughts, impact our feelings, and then our later, our behaviors. So I guess, how does CBT relate to how you help with clients? Maybe understanding those thoughts that they have, um, and then, you know, later their impact on the emotions. For sure. I think breaking down stuff, and, and one of the things I do in addition to CBT is a treatment called DBT, and it's dialectical behavior therapy. And, you know, like quick and dirty CBT is, like you said, it's, it's how your thoughts impact your actions and your emotions, right? Um, and DBT, I think, allows for a little bit more of a focus on those body sensations and those acceptance of emotions and how they how they occur. And um, I think one of the things is is just, you know, I do think that psychology and philosophy are very similar. And sometimes we don't examine the judgments that we make. And boy, when we make judgments about things, that is like a breeding ground for mm -hmm. negative emotion. It can also be a great breeding ground for positive emotion too. Like if I really like you, I'm going to have all kinds of positive assumptions about you and positive judgments, but maybe you're a bad guy. Mm -hmm. you know? So all of our judgments have to be looked at and held up to the light and try to decide if that's really how we want to view the world. And so often just something simple, like um, a really classic CBT example is if you think back to high school, and I don't know if they still have cafeterias, um, mm -hmm. but, you know, but you've got your tray, right? And you walk up to a table of people you, you think are your friends, and they all start laughing. There are a multitude of different ways we can interpret that. If I interpret it as, oh, they're having fun, I'm so excited to join in, great. But if I interpret that as laughing, something wrong and toxic and weird about me, then I'm going to, you know, give them a dirty look, 
walk away. And then I've just created this whole stoop of issues that are going to move forward from there. And like the assumptions, like you said, too, we could walk up to that similar situation, think the worst of them, and then, you know, create this whole scenario in our head when none of that actually happened. (laughs) Yeah, we're really good at kind of living in our own movie, you know, (laughs) with this pre-written script. And I think that's another point for mindfulness Mm -hmm. is, is the idea that, oh, maybe I'll observe and describe what's really happening rather than maybe what my childhood experiences and my trauma and all that mush is going to tell me is actually happening is not actually happening but tell me is happening Mm -hmm. when you know if I sit and just pay attention to it for a while I might have a very different so is there a exercise or recommendation that you give to clients when it comes to learning how to tap into their judgments um, or learning how to just sit in their body sensations Yeah, um, I think there's all kinds of ideas here. I think about judgment. I think it's really important first to recognize that judgments are a survival tool. I mean, when we really think about the human brain, we're not that evolved. We're just Mm -hmm. not. And so much of the time, we are living in fight or flight mode. You know, so much of our emotional experience stems from this very primitive part of our brain, the limbic system with the amygdala and hippocampus. And they're all sitting there just going, who's going to eat us today? What tiger is going to try to kill us today? Right. (laughs) And so, and so if we're not aware that that's the, that's only as far as we've evolved just yet, we interpret something like a dirt, what we consider a dirty look from somebody else. It might just be that they have, you know, bitch face right um but but or they're they're thinking or whatever if we interpret that with our primitive brain we view that as a threat we view that as a threat to our safety right if we feel rejected by other members of our tribe there's part of us who thinks they're going to leave us alone by the serengeti to die right (laughs) and so so it's like first of all it's just just recognizing that we're just not that evolved and that being being able to see that our our primitive brain is sometimes charged and re-regulating going oh lizard (laughs) brains in charge cave person brains in charge let's go back am i really in danger no in all of you know almost all of us get home just fine every night Mm -hmm. you know and some people don't, and that's horrible, but most of the time we're pretty safe. And um, but our brains are acting as if we're not. And so the idea I think is is to really accurately assess our threat level, which usually involves taking away those judgments about safety. One that I've learned that has personally helped me and then some of the clients I work with. Uh, it's the conscious check-in. So you, you know, put alarm on your phone or, uh, you know, you set it for however many times a day and it's your five, 10 minute break where your alarm goes off and you sit wherever you are, you stop what you're doing and you, you do a body scan, you know, what's happening in my head, what's happening in my neck, my shoulders, my chest, all the way down to my toes. And you physically name, you know, the experiences, the sensations you're having. Oh, there's, tension in my shoulders. I feel hot. Like I have the sweaty palms. 
Um, and then the more often, you know, with repetition, uh, repetition <laughs> that you're able to do that, uh, the better you are, you know, with those body sensations and being in the presence. I absolutely love that. Mm -hmm. And I, I love the setting the timer on the phone. Uh, when when per, the person who trained me in DBT, Alan Frazetti, would talk about the idea of just a momentary break of bathroom mindfulness, just remembering to be mindful every time you go to the bathroom, because it's something as humans we do from time to time. So attaching that sort of moment of mindfulness, that that conscious check-in to something that we do anyway can really help us remember to to check in and 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 see what's actually happening rather than what that primitive brain is imagining. I like that. I've never heard of attaching it to the bathroom. Like you said, it's something we do every day. So I think for people that are like, oh no, setting alarm for 10 minutes is way too much for me. I think that's a great <laughs> recommendation. Well, it's not much else we can do in there, you know, other than scroll on our phones or whatever. Yeah. And this might actually be a little more helpful, mm -hmm. ultimately, than going on Instagram or TikTok. Yeah. Whatever the young people are doing these days. I think other people, you know, attach it to every time I sit down at the computer, I do a free body scanner, a free check-in, or every time I get in my car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look at the uh, look at what's around you. You can do the five, four, three, two, one exercise. Ground yourself. That's great. And so you, we talked about DBT a little, but I know you've written a book about it. Um, so do you want to explain a little about what's it about? What you talk about? What What I love about DBT is it it stems in some ways. The, the creator, Marshall Linehan, who is brilliant, um, might not agree with me on this, and I'm probably saying this wrong, mm -hmm. but but the idea is, is that so many of us are more sensitive than what the world prepares us for. And, and so if we are more sensitive than the average person, walking around in the world can feel like being naked in a world of sandpaper. Mm -hmm. And some of us, me included, can really benefit from a set of skills that help us live in the world, protecting our sensitivity, because our sensitivity is a gift. You look at any healer, and they are almost always a highly sensitive human being, mm -hmm. because the gift that comes along with it is compassion, empathy, passion for causes, activism, and, and creativity, all these amazing things. And yet, if we get roughed up by the world all the time, we don't have the energy to do all those things. We don't have the ability. So this set of skills that was originally built for people who were more sensitive, um, typically these were folks who um, qualified for the criteria of borderline personality disorder, which is a disorder of emotional regulation and interpersonal regulation as well. And so these folks, um, the folks that Marsha was originally treating were chronically suicidal and self-harming because these were ways to deal with emotions. These are, you know, relatively effective ways except for the dead thing that could result from it. You know, these were moderately effective ways in, in helping deal with a world that felt too much. Mm -hmm. So these set of skills that, that 
Marsha helped develop, Marsha developed along with her team and through a lot of research and a lot of thievery, frankly, stealing stuff from CBT, yeah. <laughs> stealing stuff from, from, you know, Zen Buddhism mm-hmm. and, then, you know, all this other stuff um, and created the set of skills that helps people who are more sensitive live in the world and the skills to walk around mindfulness. And that's about, you know, being in the present moment, the real present moment, not the imagined present moment or the feared present moment um, or your past or whatever. And distress tolerance, which is how to get through bad situations without making them worse. Like we, we talked about eating all the cookies because yeah. we're feeling shame. You know, that takes a bad situation and makes it worse, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so getting through crises without making them worse, along with, radically accepting when there are things we can't do a dark thing about because like the buddha is credited with saying life is pain suffering is optional and if we don't accept ordinary pain because of incredible suffering and so that distress tolerance then we've got emotional regulation and those skills are all about how to if an emotion is either unjustified by the current situation lasting too long, creating a lot of difficulties for us, how to identify an emotion and shift out of it or process it through, feel it and get it done with so we can move on to what's next. And then the last set of skills is interpersonal. And this appeals to kind of my internal supervillain because (laughs) (laughs) the the idea here is it's, it's all about how to get what we want while maintaining our self-respect, but also maintaining our relationships. And a lot of us have been taught that to have good relationships, we have to give up what we Yeah. Or we have to kind of, oh, I don't know. I, I, I guess manipulate or massage to get what we want. And yes, mm-hmm. because that's the human condition, right? We, we are working towards getting our needs met. Yeah. And the, the idea is, is that we do, we do manipulate each other and there's not really that much wrong with it. Ultimately, if we're doing it um, while keeping in mind what's fair for us and for other people. And so those sets of skills are really at the heart of DBT. And there's a lot of other stuff too, doing doing real life DBT in a therapy room or in a therapy session involves a lot more, but those skills are really what DBT is best known for. Yeah. And I heard you mention um, an important topic about getting your needs met. Um, To me, that signals nonviolent communication. Um, Are you, I assume you're familiar with that? Just a little (laughs) bit, just a little bit. (laughs) Well, for people that are listening that may not be aware of that either, Um, It was formulated by Marshall Rosenberg, um, and he essentially talks about how humans have these universal needs and, you know, one set of needs for me, you know, may not be the same for you. So they're subjective, Um, but he connects it to, you know, if you get your needs met, uh, it's correlated to, you know, maybe positive outlooks on life, those positive positive core beliefs, but also more positive emotions, right? If we feel heard in relationships, if we feel seen, we feel supported, you know, there's autonomy, there's choice, we're more likely, um, in quotes, 
going to have a more positive outlook on life and then those positive emotions. So I was curious when you mentioned your like needs and meeting needs, if you could explain, you know, a little more about that and what you mean. I think that when our needs are met, when we get yeah. what we need to feel cared for and all of those things back from uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? yeah. <laughs> so the whole idea of, you know, from everything from just shelter and food and safety to um, self-actualization and then the belongingness and everything that comes from being part of a group and being loved and cared for. Um, if those needs get met, we, we are actually much nicer people. We're kinder to other people. We're there for other people. We're more compassionate. And I just think by getting our needs met to a certain level, it just makes the world a better place. Mm -hmm. And so often, particularly women, we're socialized to give up our needs, to put ourselves last, to put everybody else first. And while on the surface, that seems like we're being really good people, yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, it breeds resentment and burnout and all of these things that lead us to not being able to make positive contributions to others and ourselves. Mm -hmm. So I do think that, that getting our needs met is like a stepping stone to making the world a better place. So do you think then it, because when I've talked to clients about this too, they have the they always have the response and they say, well, why should I rely on other people to get my needs met? Um, and I always push back on that. I'm like, why can't you meet your own needs first? Like, why does it have to come from someone else first? Um, do you think that too? I, yes. And, you know, one thing that, that comes up for me a lot is, is the idea of validation. Mm -hmm. And validation is the idea that somebody else or yourself um, thinks that what you think or feel makes sense, yep. isn't wackadoodle, isn't crazy. And it's one of the ways we regulate emotions as human beings. You know, if you've ever had a, a difficult time, let's say a, a job and, and your boss is acting in ways that are just, ugh, <laughs> and then you catch an eye of a coworker and your coworker goes, mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and they get it, right? They so get what you're going mm -hmm. through. <laughs> and our emotional distress goes down because somebody else gets it. Well, then when we're walking out around in the world, sometimes we get really dependent on other people getting it. Mm -hmm. And we hope they do, but sometimes they do. And learning to self-validate and to meet our own need for validation Mm -hmm. saying, you know, what? nobody else gets it, but I get it. And my emotions and my views and my ways of looking make sense. Mm -hmm. it's, it's often the way we can self-regulate, especially when we're in situations where other folks just aren't understanding or don't have the bandwidth to get what we're going through. Mm -hmm. So besides just like that positive self-talk that you were just mentioning, is there other ways that listeners can practice that self-validation? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think just like you were talking about that microsecond, mm -hmm. that's a form of self-validation, isn't it? I'm going to check in with me. I'm worth checking in with. And it's worth paying attention to what's happening within my body. 
that right there is a way to to say to ourselves, we matter. Mm-hmm. I also think when you talked about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, meeting your own basic needs yourself, like drinking water every morning. Sometimes that's really hard to do. Showering, um, eating food, and I would add in there nutritious food, um, you know, just those basic essential stuff that keeps us, you know, alive and awake every day uh, could be that self-validation that some people need. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's that idea of in some ways putting ourselves first Mm -hmm. is, is that, you know, maybe I'm running around trying to get everybody, everything they need. It's like, but I haven't watered today. I haven't, I haven't taken care of that. And, and it's so easy, especially for those of us who are parents and, and, or have people who are depending on us is that it's it's hard to remember to mm-hmm. do that. And then sometimes I really do think that we feel like we can't give those things to ourselves. We almost mm-hmm. have to wait for other people to give us permission to have those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I first, it, it brings back when you just talked about burnout earlier. Um, you know, I think that plays a role in too, if you're not meeting your basic needs, right, that also plays a role, you know, who you're working for and all that stuff as well. But, you know, if you don't practice that self-care, you know, you don't check in with yourself, I think that burnout rate is, you know, I think it's much higher and more likely to happen. Well, and I think we go so much on autopilot. And, you know, it's like we may have a core belief about Mm -hmm. like being a good person means saying yes and never saying no or or being useful is really important so you must always do what you're asked and you're not allowed to say no and all of those things and the and that these these kind of just autopilot thoughts and ways we we walk in the world are so are so on that road to burnout so i just wanted to start to wrap up a little bit but i wanted to ask you um, what are some things or maybe some takeaway points that you want to highlight to listeners today? Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, or tips or, you know, recommendations <laughs> from the wise. <laughs> I I have a really silly thing that I want to talk about. Okay, let's hear it. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. You know, because we have that primitive brain and we hear so we feel live so often in fight or flight um, that, and we're at the mercy of our our sympathetic nervous system, our autonomic nervous system and our our sympathetic nervous system is in charge basically of that of that fight or flight response you know whether we should activate and run like hell mm-hmm. right? And so often we tell people to breathe. I mean, you see people with little tattoos and, and all of that. And the problem is we don't teach people how to breathe. Yes, um, yes. You know, that in-breath, we're going to take a second with me and take a breath in and just hold your breath for a second. Do you feel calm or relaxed with no. that in-breath? <laughs> no, because that in-breath is associated with the sympathetic nervous system yeah. it activates us for fight or flight mm-hmm. and if you don't know that the out breath is what activates the parasympathetic nervous system the part that's called rest and digest the part that helps us live in calm then you're going to think breathing is really stupid 
Yes. <laughs> I always, <laughs> yeah, I, I felt like I was suffocating. And usually I tell people, you know, here's some breathing techniques, but that's a great point to highlight just to breathe in. It's like, oh my gosh, I feel more panic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the thing is, is that we really want to know is if we're trying to breathe to calm ourselves, to bring ourselves our, our reactivity down, our out-breath has to last longer than our in-breath. And in DBT, we call this pace to breathing. Mm -hmm. And so we might say, you know, let's breathe in for a count of four and out for a count of six, because where the piece is, is in the bottom of that out-breath. And, and it's just, you know, I have so many folks who, who just come in and the first thing they say to me, if I try to teach a breathing exercise, they just, no. Breathing makes me feel worse. Breathing is crazy pants. What are you talking about? And and really, I, I think about that idea is, is that's just one simple shift makes all the difference in the world. Now, that doesn't allow for relaxation-induced panic, which does happen to some people, where they're, they're doing breathing exercises expecting to calm down. They're not calming down quickly enough, so they panic. Yeah. But really, that just that one basic notion of the out-breath is what's associated with calming ourselves down and with activating the parasympathetic nervous system. It, that's magic to me. And and I think I think that we just never talk about it. Yeah. I when I was in counseling myself, um, I was taught the four, seven, eight, which, you know, it reminds me of a lot of what you're talking about, but I almost feel an immediate relief. And for those who haven't tried it, it's you inhale for four, you hold for seven, you exhale for eight, and you can kind of switch up those numbers. But just like you were saying, uh, make sure the exhale is longer than the inhale. But I will do that two, maybe three times and immediate relief. I love that technique so much. <laughs> and that and that's thing is, is to get that warning that four and seven are not going to be that comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> Don't expect a lot from four and seven. Eight is the is the bomb. It's the thing, right? That's what's gonna make us make us come right down. Yeah, thank you for that reminder. And I love how it's you know it's connected to your nervous system. There's science behind it, and you know you'll feel it once you try it. So go out there and do it. <laughs> um. Well, was there anything else you wanted to mention today or talk about? Um, that you want to let the listeners know about. I can be found at SuzetteBray.com. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at SuzetteBrayLMFT, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, and um, reach out. Let me know what you want to hear about. I'm happy to talk more about what, what folks want to know about emotional regulation. Yeah, and I will be attaching all of her contact information as well. Um, when you post about or when I post about it, she'll be tagged, so you can definitely go follow her, go schedule a session with her. Um, she's definitely the expert in emotional regulation. I've already learned a lot from you today. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to close out. Thank you so much for being here. This has been a blast. Thank you. Of course. And I just wanted to say thank you to all the listeners today. Again, tuning in, listening, if you're subscribing and following along, thank you. Um, if you are interested, though, subscribe to the podcast. It's on Spotify. It's on Apple Podcasts. I also have an Instagram. It's at holistic underscore healing LC. Um, I have a website, holistichealinglc.com. There's my Gmail on there as well. 
I do wellness sessions. I do tarot readings. I do palm readings. You can also reach out about being a guest on the next show. Um, but it was good to have you here again. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Bye.